You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. This past week, the world watched in horror as the news of what took place in Turkey and Syria was recounted to us in video after video of the tragic earthquakes that took place there. A 7.8 earthquake to be followed with hundreds of aftershocks, some even as strong as 7.5. To date, estimates of the death toll are 29,000 people. 25,000 of those people in Turkey, another 4,000 plus in Syria. It's been devastating to watch. Earthquakes are a perilous natural disaster because there's not really any warning about them coming. We know of things like fault lines and placement of places being built around such locations, but there are other natural disasters that we can at least see coming, have a sense of warning. I used to live in the Midwest. Every Friday at 11 a.m., the entrance to our neighborhood, there was a test of the tornado warning alarm to just make sure it worked and people knew what that was to remind them at any other time throughout the day or night when they heard that alarm, it was indeed a tornado sighting. We live here in South Florida. We're used to hurricane watches and warnings and tropical storms. We can see the storms from a distance, and we have appropriate alarms. I'm reminded of the natural disaster of 2004 with the underwater earthquake and the subsequent tsunami in the South Pacific. On Sunday morning, December 26, 2004, a 9.1 underwater earthquake took place in some spots lifting the surface of the ocean as much as 120 feet from its original place, rupturing a 900-mile stretch of fault line where the Indian and Australian tectonic plates meet. Within 20 minutes of that earthquake, the first of several 100-foot waves hit the shorelines along the South Pacific initially killing over 100,000 people and pounding the cities and villages into complete rubble. Then in successive waves, the tsunami continued to come over the coastline in Thailand, India, Sri Lanka, killing tens of thousands of more. All the way down, there's casualties as far as South Africa. Nearly 230,000 people were killed from that natural disaster. The question is, in such a situation like that, were there early warning signs? Did the people know? Could they have done something about it to spare themselves from such disaster? Thanks to the technology that we continue to develop as a society, 
We're increasingly doing a better job putting out type of indicators and alarms of this type of possibility and the warning of this. But even something as basic as being at a seashore at a time when it's not low tide, to begin to see all of the water be withdrawn from the shore as if it's like completely dry is an early indication something tragic and terrible is about to take place. Well, this morning, I don't want to talk to you about natural disasters. I want to talk to you about spiritual disasters. But unlike natural disasters that only come in such a way that even when they do come, they can end one's life physically, a spiritual disaster can end one's life eternally. Spiritual disasters send people to hell. And I want us to see the early warning signs that God's Word has given us and some of the alarm devices that we need to learn so that we can see when disaster is coming. To do that, would you please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. If you're joining us for the first time this morning or perhaps you were not here with us last week, let me just say to those of you who are guests to reiterate what Raquel has extended to you, a word of welcome. Glad for you to be here. For those of you that this is your church but were not with us last week, welcome back. We have begun our series through the book of Galatians where there is no other gospel. That is the theme of the book of Galatians. Last week in Galatians chapter 1 verses 1 to 5, we essentially read Paul's business card, how he presented it to us, who he is, who he works for, what he did you, what is it that he does began to see what it is that he wanted to see in the Galatians' lives. But now we come to our text this morning in Galatians chapter 1, and continuing where we left off last week, read with me, follow along as I read verses 6 through 9. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Title of this morning's message is Someone's Going to Hell. Someone's Going to Hell. And there's two lessons we need to learn this morning from this text. First of all, in verses 6 to the beginning of verse 7, is a crisis for new Christians. A crisis for new Christians. Now, let me just remind you about the context of Galatians. Galatians is a letter written to churches, as we can see back in verse 2, to the churches of Galatia. These churches in different towns, uh, Yodia and Syntyche, these different places around there, Iconium, these different places are places that Paul was just in himself about a year earlier. 
And he came through town and he preached the gospel, doing what he would typically do as recording the book of Acts. He would go first to synagogues. If they had any synagogues there, he would go first to the Jewish people and say, listen, I want to tell you as a fellow Jewish person what you have not understood from the teachings of Scripture, who Jesus is, because he is the one we've been waiting for. He'd often get kicked out of the synagogues and then he'd go into the marketplace and interact with people, people that are Gentiles. In other words, they're not Jewish people. And he would tell them the good news of Jesus, basically telling them, hey, all these other religions around you, all these other seemingly statutes and idols, they're nothing. There is one true God. He created you, and he offers to save you from the wrath that will otherwise come from him who all those who don't turn to his son, Jesus Christ. And these are new Christians. Some of you relate to that. There's numbers of you that have been a Christian for not even a whole year. Imagine an entire church where the entire church has been a Christian for less than a year. And he writes them a concern. Now right away in the beginning of the book of Galatians, we need to see the contrast. If you're not familiar with the Bible, that's okay. You're in a great spot. We want to make you familiar with the Bible. If you don't even have a Bible, that's okay. We want you to know we've got Bibles for you for free at the Welcome Center. An accurate, readable translation that falls along with what I'm reading here. But in the meantime, track with me here. When Paul would write letters, oftentimes to churches, sometimes individuals, even when he'd write to churches, he'd often start with a greeting. And a word of thankfulness. In fact, don't just take my word for it. Keeping your, your finger in the book of Galatians, turn with me to the right in your Bible to the next letter, the letter of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, after he does his introduction, gives him his business card, if you will, so to speak, of verses 1 to 2. In verses 3, he has this long run-on sentence about the grace of God in salvation. It's remarkable. And then he gets into the purpose of his writing. Turn again further in your Bibles to the right. The book of Philippians. Again, after his introduction of verses 1 and 2, he gets to verse 3 and he says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in my prayer of you. Again, turn your Bibles to Colossians, just one more book to the right. After he does his introduction there to the church in Colossae, he says in verse 3, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, when he writes Christians he starts off with greetings and words of thanksgiving for them. In fact, to illustrate that in a profound way, in his letter to the Corinthians, which is one jacked up church. There are a bunch of new Christians in a crazy secular city, and they got some serious problems. When they get together for the Lord's Supper, it was a big meal and they get together, the rich would show up early and they would drink all the wine and get drunk. And there'd be nothing left for the other people when they would come after work. They would also have divisions. They'd be cliquish. They'd have their favorite disciples, their favorite apostles. They were cliquish like that. Then when they had their spiritual gifts, they would use them like talent show. Hey, check me out. Look what I can do. Look what I do. God loves me more. They were not loving at all. They were a hot mess. And yet, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, before Paul gets into all of those issues, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says the following, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him and all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. 
So that you're not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friends, I reference these different letters that Paul's written so that you can kind of feel the contrast in Galatians. There's no word of thanksgiving. There's no like, hey, let's just stop for a minute and just take it in, how good God is, and I'm so thankful what's going on in your life. Paul shows up on the scene with his writing with a serious concern of a major crisis. You go back to Galatians chapter 1. He says, I am astonished. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Friends, the context here is like this. A parent has been at work all day, leaving their child at home, presumably in the care of another person, perhaps another parent, perhaps a caretaker, perhaps a grandmother, perhaps an older sibling. And the child and the parent returns home to the house to their shock and their horror, sees the young little child riding their cute little bicycle that they got for Christmas, not in the safe confines of the driveway, but out into the street where cars are driving by. That parent comes home. What do you think that they do? They say, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll get down a second. Hey, it's so good to see you. Give daddy a hug. How was your day? What did you do today? Do you know what's for dinner? Oh, b- by the way, you should not ride your bike in the street. That's not conversation. It's never taken place like that. What happens? That parent shockingly sees a child, gets out of the car, quick, come here. You're in danger. Oh, my goodness. And they yell out of fear and concern. Are they angry? No, they're worried, sick. That in any minute... If the parent had not come home, they would have been perhaps irreparably, overwhelmingly injured, if not killed. There's an alarm. Paul comes to the Galatians with that same sense of parental tone. He is shocked. He is shocked, and that's why he says, I am astonished. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him. Friends, this is sadly not the first time this has been recorded in Scripture. God's people who have seen God do a remarkable work in their life, overwhelming grace that he has shown them, provided for them in remarkable ways, and yet they've begun to wander. Probably no better example to cite to you than the one in the Old Testament with the people of Israel. They have just been liberated from Egypt They have received the law at Mount Sinai as God has given it to Moses to give to them. They've entered into covenant with the Lord. At this time in their story, Moses has ascended Mount Sinai to hear from God. And the people are waiting to have hear back from God by Moses returning. And you know what happens? They grow impatient. They want to be like everybody else. Give us a God we can see with our eyes, something we can tangibly touch and understand. The incomprehensibility of God, the infinite reality of God is too much for us. We want something like everybody else. So they tell Aaron, the high priest, 
Give us a God that we can see. Aaron gives in to crowd pressure, collects all their gold, and makes a golden calf. There's your God. Exodus chapter 32, verse 8. The Lord says to Moses about the Israelites, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Friends, this is an embarrassing reality for a lot of us in Christianity is how we can be tempted to forsake the God who has saved us. Now, to be clear, the Bible here has a different tone in verses 6 and the beginning of verse 7 than it does in the rest of verse 7 through verse 9. Because Paul really is dealing with two different audiences that we're about to see here in a second. And I want to be clear in the, why it is that he wants to delineate the difference here. Paul is not saying Christians can lose their salvation. Some of you have grown up and been taught that in churches that have had distorted the teaching of Scripture. That's not what he's saying. Paul is basically saying you need to recognize that you're being taught now to believe something different than what you were taught before, and this new teaching is actually contrary to it. And if you actually believe that new teaching, it's questionable whether you actually believe the original teaching. A case study of this is the book of Hebrews. This is exactly what's going on in the book of Hebrews. Look at what he says here in verse 6. I am astonished that you're so quickly, what? Deserting him who called you. Called you. This is, this is a profoundly important term. This term, God calling you, is God to actually do something that otherwise could not be done unless God had done it. It is a miraculous work that God does in calling the perfect illustration of this is in the book of Romans. When Paul is writing to the church at Rome, he says in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, talking about the significance of Abraham and Sarah, he says how God calls into existence the things that do not exist. In Romans chapter 4, the context is he's talking about Abraham and Sarah and the fact that they don't have any kids. And he's going to create a whole nation from a couple who can't get pregnant. Like, that is humanly impossible. And God's like, exactly. Exactly. But it's possible with me. And so he gives them Isaac. An old woman's womb now gives birth to Isaac. And from Isaac becomes the whole descendants of which he promised would come. It was God's call that turned Paul from a persecutor of the church to an apostle for the church. It is God's call that does the work that man cannot do. It is God's work, not man's achievement. This is exactly what he's describing here. This miracle of God's calling, bringing to life that was dead, bringing to sight that was blind, bringing to hearing that was deaf, God called you. But then look at the description of the call. He says, who called you in the grace of Christ. Friends, calling is inseparable from grace. No one deserves it. No one earned it. 
No one chose it. It's simply a work of God in his declaring it. And he does so 100% by grace. And what's remarkable here to just recognize when Paul says this, that the Galatians are being tempted to return to a belief in human achievement. Let me set the scene here for you. The scene is these new Christians who are new in the faith are being told by other teachers who have showed up on the scene after Paul has left originally and have said, hey, listen, I'm glad you believe in Jesus. I'm glad you're big on the word of God now. But let me just tell you something. As a Jewish person myself, who's been observing the law for over a thousand years, not themselves individually, but as far as the history of Judaism in that sense, over thousands of years, let me just tell you, the thing that you don't yet have that you need to have in order to secure the grace of God is that you need to be circumcised because circumcision is a sign of you keeping the law of God. And if you are not circumcised, well, then you're not saved. You're not saved. Paul's like, you realize when people tell you that and you're tempted to believe that, you're returning to a gospel. You're going backwards, not forwards, into something that's by human salvation, by human merit and accomplishment, not the grace of Christ. I mean, think about this. To give up the grace of Christ is to make a mockery of Jesus and his work. To slide into salvation by human accomplishment is to essentially say to Jesus, you're not enough. Who you are and what you've done, not enough. Sure, you, you obeyed the law perfectly. Sure, you were never wrathful, you were never greedy, you were never lying, you were never lustful, you were never proud, you are always obedient, you were perfect in every respect. Sure, you were crucified, unjustly, wrongly persecuted, and killed on the cross. Sure, you were scorned and abandoned, even by your closest disciples. But Jesus, it was not enough to pay for my sin because I need to do some more and in doing that more, I will then complete what's lacking in your sacrifice. That's what happens when we want to go back to a human achieving gospel, which is no other gospel, as Paul says. Let me just have a word, if I may, for a minute with those of you who are new Christians. And I thank God that so many of you are. God has been gracious to open the eyes of many people here to the truth that's in Jesus Christ. So many of you have come to understand that the very thing you've longed for, that assurance, that identity, that security, that validation, that sense of purpose, that sense of forgiveness, that sense of reconciliation, that that reality can only be found in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by repenting of your sins and giving your life to Christ. And I rejoice with you in that. Some of you have not yet even believed that, and I call you to do so even this morning. But for those of you who are new Christians, let me just say, just again, by 
reminder, welcome. Make yourself at home at Grace Church. Move in, set up shop. Don't stay out in the world. It's imperative that you know your God, that you know your Bible. Actually, like have a real Bible. Not one that you read like it's an Instagram post. I mean like a real Bible where you like, you know it in its context. You know what's before and after. You see the argument. You understand the writing. You appreciate what's going on there. And it's accurate and readable. And you're reading and you're having your heart be changed by it. Know yourself as you know the word. Know each other. Be sure to attend the community group that comes to my house as we study the gospel-centered life. Even attend an upcoming class we're going to have called Habits of Grace where we want to see our new Christians shaped in understanding how they understand the Bible and how they understand prayer and how they understand community. I'm reminded of even recently what we studied in our community group in the gospel-centered life, the need to keep believing the gospel. We read a quote by Martin Luther. Some of you will know it already as I begin to say it. But listen, if you've never heard this, listen to what Martin Luther, a German reformer in the 1500s said. He says, most necessary is it that we know the gospel well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. That's a good friend. That's a good friend. You want to go to a church where you've got a good friend and your friends beat the gospel in your head continually. Why? Because you're just like me and I'm just like you. We can be thick-headed. We can forget the gospel. We got to go back to it over and over and over again. So Paul has told us a crisis for new Christians. Secondly, Paul now gives a condemnation for false teachers. A condemnation for false teachers. Look back to the text, picking up in the second half of verse 7. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This phrase that's given here, that there are some who trouble you. This is the reality that there are multiple false teachers that have come in. This isn't just one individual. This isn't like Paul's arch nemesis. There are multiple false teachers that have come in, even in a relatively short amount of time. But here's the deal you got to remember about false teachers. They don't actually introduce themselves as a false teacher. Hi, my name's Simon. I'm a false teacher. Just thought we'd get that out in the open right away. But I want you to know that, just in the spirit of being honest, that what I'm about to tell you is a bunch of lies. And if you believe what I'm teaching versus the Bible, you go to hell. But I'm being honest. That's not how false teachers work. False teachers identify themselves as true teachers. It's not like it's on their LinkedIn profile, their Instagram bio, or their business card. Listen to me. The devil hates the gospel. The devil hates the gospel. Because it's a continued pronunciation, he's done. Christ wins and reigns and will rule for eternity. But the devil's way of hating the gospel 
His way of distorting it, of undermining it, and replacing it is subtle. Look at the text, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You have it on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's talking to the Corinthians. He says in verse 12 through 15, And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who like to claim that in their boastful mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Friends, what Paul is doing here in Galatians 1 is issuing a condemnation because of a false teacher's denunciation. False teachers will speak of another gospel but will do so in a way that will ultimately damn them and anyone who follows them. He has this phrase here in the text. It starts again, and you'll see it in verse 8. Even if, verse 9, he says a little bit differently, if anyone. The true standard for Christianity is not the messenger, but the message. That's what Paul's saying here. Even if I, he says, was to preach it, or an angel from heaven, Paul's picking extremes. He's, he's picking like hyperbole. He's like, it doesn't matter who says it. It doesn't matter if it's your grandma. It doesn't matter if it's a nice old lady. It doesn't matter if it's like a seemingly intellectual, educated person. It doesn't matter if somebody seemingly knows the Bible in and out. If somebody preaches a gospel other than the gospel that Jesus alone saves by faith alone and grace alone, then they are to be accursed. Don't listen to them. No matter how good they look, how smart they sound, how convincing they are, how many followers they have, how many books they sell, do not listen to them, Paul says. Why? Because Christianity is measured based on the message, not the messenger. How often we've had to be reminded of that. Here's the reality about the church today. The church's greatest danger is not the anti-gospel outside the church, it's the counterfeit gospels inside the church. I mean, for them, at that time in Galatians, their false gospel was Jesus plus law. They weren't trying to take away Jesus. Keep Jesus. Keep Jesus. I'm pro-Jesus. They're basically accusing Paul of having preached less than the gospel. He left some stuff out. He was just trying to get you to like him. He didn't tell you the whole truth. He left out the part you should be circumcised. You need to do something. They're claiming their knowledge of the Bible, trying to add to it. Now, why does this alternative gospel seem like such good news? Why does it work? You ever ask that question? How is the gospel, the false gospel, which is, he says, not another gospel, there's no other good news, but why does it seemingly find itself to be so successful? Well, first of all, because the false gospel will seemingly offer you assurance of salvation. 
A false gospel offers you assurance of salvation. Why? Because you can look to something you have done to grant you that assurance. You're good. You're okay. The story of Luther that just drove him crazy as a Roman Catholic priest was that he was told as a priest himself he had to go to confession and that God would accept him if he confessed his sins. And so he's like, i got to keep confessing my sins. And so he kept going back to another priest to confess his sins and he went all the time. And as soon as he got done with his confession, he'd go back and he'd go back and realize he hadn't confessed everything he could think of so he confessed some more sins. And he kept doing this back and forth and back and forth. And he drove the priest crazy who he was confessing to himself as a priest. And the priest told him, go commit some real sins that you can confess. He was so overwhelmed by it. But because Luther had been taught, if you confess enough, then God will forgive you. And so your assurance is, have you confessed enough? Everything you can think of, everything that you have wanted to do, everything that you've tried to do, everything that you've not done that you should have done, everything in this long list, have you actually confessed that? And if you have, you are assured you're a Christian. John Bunyan helpfully says, there is enough sin in my best prayer to send the whole world to hell. False gospels offer you assurance of salvation because you can look to yourself to provide that assurance, what you've done, and not look to Christ. The second reason why these seemingly good news work so much because it gives you a sense of accomplishment. It builds up your own self-identity. Look what I've done which gives you a sense of justification and pride and the positioning of yourself to be judging others accordingly. The gospel is if you trust in anything else but in Christ's work for you to gain your forgiveness of your sins and favor from God, if you're trusting in anything other than the gospel, then you're not actually believing in Christ. Jesus alone. Here's the kicker. It's not even your faith that saves you. It's Christ that saves you. Your faith is in Christ. So sometimes Christians will feel like, understandably, in this kind of spirit of immaturity, like, I just don't know if I have enough faith. I'll go and tell you right now. You don't. You don't. Or you you will today, but you won't tomorrow. Your assurance of your salvation is not, do you have enough faith? That's never where the Bible directs you. The Bible directs you, where is the object of your faith? To whom are you putting your faith in? Christ saves, not your faith saving you. Faith is the means by which that trust is demonstrated. And even then, Ephesians 2, that's a gift from God. God gets all the glory. Him saving sinners. Think about false gospels today. The faith plus works, that's so common. Sacraments you should do. You should be baptized. If you're not baptized, you're not a Christian. Some people believe that. Some wrong denominations have taught that. Baptism and generations, not true denominations. Others have been taught you're not a Christian if you don't speak in tongues. Again, another work. You've got to do this or you're not a Christian. That's not the gospel. Others have been taught outside of that the gospel of financial prosperity. God loves you. He will bless you. And so you're always working for God's blessing you financially. This is a common problem with the prosperity gospel, promising people what God has never promised. The gospel of family stability, the good news that I will get married, I will have kids, our family will be secure, and I want to protect my family idolatry scene. 
or the gospel political identity. God loves me and will have everybody vote my way, with my ideologies, with my policies, with my programs, as if that's your ultimate trust in your good news. Or the gospel of self and security. God is essentially just somebody who's supporting you in your desire to be self-fulfilled. You're the gospel. You are the good news in that false gospel. Perhaps you've heard in recent months the news of one U.S. congressman who was elected to office last November, but now has learned that much of his resume was fabricated lies in which he's acknowledged himself. The lies are pretty wide-reaching. He stated that he attended a private university that he never did, even going so far as claiming he was a star of their volleyball team. Like, you just overreached on that one. He claimed his mother died in one of the trade towers that collapsed as a result of 9-11, that his grandparents fled the Holocaust. He said he was mugged on the way to delivering his rent check. He claimed he lost four employees in the 2016 Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando. And the list goes on. And today, the person I speak of still sits as a congressman in the United States Congress. Now, admittedly, both political parties are trying to remove him, but it's a process. Paul does not believe in such a process with false teachers in the church. He's like, well, let's, let's, uh, let's discuss it. Let's get a committee together. Uh, let's find out how one's feeling about this. Uh, let's find out if they meant well. Maybe they meant well. You know who are we to judge? I don't want to judge anybody. I think it'd be further from the truth. Paul says so strongly here, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. The significance here, what he's saying in verse 8 and verse 9, this term, accursed, is this idea of being condemned, sent to hell. You're like, well, Paul, that does not seem to be very loving. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 11, a false prophet who preaches apostasy is to be put to death. Paul's not saying that here. Paul is saying here that God will judge this person for all eternity. It's talking about end time destruction. Now, admittedly, in this age of the new tolerance, if you will, it's perhaps possible some are thinking, well, this doesn't seem to be very loving to wish curses on somebody. But that's not very Christ-like. Meanwhile, forgetting that Christ actually pronounced curses against such people like this. Again, Martin Luther helps us when he writes the following. This is not preaching that gains favor from men and from the world. For the world finds nothing more irritating and intolerable than hearing its wisdom, righteousness, religion, and power condemned. For if we denounce men and all their efforts, it is inevitable that we quickly encounter bitter hatred, persecution, excommunication, condemnation, and execution. Summary. Nothing new here, people. This is what we do. We stand for truth. It's based upon the conviction that the word of God is the word of God. What it says is right and true, and we bring all of our lives under its authority, all of our beliefs under its dominion, all of our practices under its lordship. 
Because Christ is king and he has authority over all that he created and he created everybody in this room. Paul has taught us a crisis for new Christians. A crisis I pray we don't have here, but I know honestly we've already had before. Grace Church is a young church. We're only four years old. and We've already within those four years have had a situation and situations where people have tried to draw others aside. Come in. And it's not that it's unheard of. In fact, if you want to know how to do it, here's some tips. Listen to a podcast or a YouTube sermon. Read an article about an unknown Hebrew word or a rare Greek word. The next time you hang out with people, share what you've learned with them. Do so with such confidence it appears that you've always known this. Countless others believe this. And you can't believe the people around you don't already know this. They should catch up with you in your enlightenment. Go to church next Sunday and listen for the absence of this new revelation in the sermon or the distortion of it. Share with others how the leaders are missing it. Bonus points for you if you use the phrase, bless their heart. Send some links to others via text. Bonus points if you create a WhatsApp group devoted to this new emphasis. Organize your own hangout time so you can build friendships around this new enlightenment. Maybe create an email group or other things like this. Find a new church that provides the emphasis, though it's likely you won't, because after all, the church will probably be faithful to the gospel and your new church won't be. After all, you're enlightened, but most others are not. Your friends should be glad that they have you as you, as their leader. Head out, ghost the rest, do your thing. After all, God's got your back. And this goes on in every time zone around the world today. Because what came to the Galatians comes to Christians in Miami. And we need to be sober-minded and know our Bibles to know the truth. That we're not being proud, but we're not compromising on the conviction of the word of God. That what God's word says we're going to believe. Even if that costs me friends and family, I'm not going to compromise on what God's word has said. We need to be a church with that kind of conviction. And the question is, are you a Christian with that kind of conviction? Paul says, don't desert, don't wander from, don't waver. When we gather together as Christians every week, we gather to invite others to understand what we have already understood and to give their lives to Christ. And I hope some are even here today thinking that for the first time in their life, to give their lives to Christ, repenting of your sins and surrendering your life to Christ. Others of us, perhaps like an ammonia tablet that's been broken under our nose, has wakened us. And we have fallen asleep, lured into many false gospels around us. And others of us reminding us that we are to not only make sure that we are good, but we're reaching out to those around us to pull us together, linking arms to be faithful to the gospel, not giving in the temptations of the evil one. The Lord would hold us fast. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.